Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton from Johns Hopkins. In this lecture series, we're going to be talking about pulmonary embolism. There's actually going to be three parts. This is part one where we'll talk a little bit about the clinical background and the workup of patients with suspected pulmonary embolism. Part two, we'll talk about the technique for using CT to identify patients with pulmonary embolism. And the third part will be the findings on CT, including pitfalls. So we'll start with part one. Pulmonary embolism is part of a larger kind of disease called venous thromboembolism, and this usually starts with thrombus in the deep veins, most commonly in the lower extremities. So the patient gets a blood clot in the lower extremities, a part of the blood clot breaks off, goes through the circulation, and then lodges in the pulmonary artery. Venous pulmonary and venous thromboembolism is a major health problem worldwide. And even in the United States, there's over 600,000 episodes per year, resulting in over 50,000 deaths per year. In two large multicenter trials, you can see that the mortality rate is very high, especially with patients with hemodynamic instability. So it's up to 60% in patients who present with instability. If the patient is hemodynamically stable, then the mortality rate is less, but still significant at 8 to 15%. So in this condition, rapid diagnosis and treatment is required. Patients who die often die in the first couple of hours, so right after admission. So there's, they take a rapid downturn and hemodynamically instable and then die very quickly. When severe, remember pulmonary embolism can induce right heart failure and that would lead to circulatory collapse and death. There are many studies that the clinician can use to evaluate for suspected pulmonary embolism. And we'll go through these very quickly. It includes a history and physical exam. They do arterial blood gases, EKG, D-dimer. Um, then often for radiologic studies, they'll include chest x-ray, maybe VQ scan, echocardiogram. And then in the past, they would do a catheter angiogram. But today, we're going to specifically focus our attention on using CT, so CTPA, so CT pulmonary angiogram. You can also use MR or some other studies, but we're going to focus on CT today. So if you talk about the clinical evaluation for pulmonary embolism, it's not always that great. If you look for the signs and symptoms, so symptoms, 73% of patients will have dyspnea, but the problem is that many patients have dyspnea that's not related to pulmonary embolism. They could have pneumonia, COPD, heart failure, et cetera. Same thing, about two-thirds of patients would have pleuritic chest pain, but that's a very nonspecific finding, cough, and hemoptysis. And then signs such as tachypnea, rails, tachycardia, or changes in the heart sounds, um, are important for the clinicians to recognize and often can indicate there may be a pulmonary embolism, but it's not specific. Clinicians typically would then perform arterial blood gas. And so here they're taking a sample of the patient's blood from the artery, usually in the arm, and they try to determine is there decreased oxygen. So most patients with pulmonary embolism would have hypoxemia or low oxygen levels, hypocapnia, and sometimes a respiratory alkalosis. They also can do pulse ox. So, for example, patients with room air pulse ox readings less than 95% at the time of diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism um, often have complications in the hospital. So although the arterial blood gas findings might not be specific for pulmonary embolism, if the patient turns out to have a pulmonary embolism, they do have diagnostic and prognostic significance. So a patient with pulmonary embolism that has certain changes in the blood gas then um, will tend to have complications well in the hospital. As I said, typical arterial blood gas findings are not always seen. 
So for example, you could have a massive PE with hypotension and respiratory collapse, and you might have hypercapnia instead of hypocapnia, and you might have a combined respiratory and metabolic acidosis. So it's not exactly um, that helpful to do a blood gas in order to make the diagnosis, but it does help you to determine how the patient's going to do. Now, typically for the workup, they would also perform an EKG, especially people presenting with nonspecific chest pain. And the EKG abnormalities exist in many patients with PE who don't have any pre-existing cardiovascular disease. But the problem is that the same EKG abnormalities are also common in patients without PE. So that limits their diagnostic usefulness. In one of the studies, 70% of patients with PE had EKG, abnormality, EKG abnormalities, most commonly nonspecific ST segment and T wave changes. So there's a list here of the following EKG abnormalities that have been associated with poor prognosis. So if a patient has a pulmonary embolism and they have atrial arrhythmias or a right bundle branch block, for example, then they usually have a poor prognosis. This was a nice study presented that looked at pulmonary Angio I'm sorry, CT pulmonary angiograms, how much clot there was, and correlated that with EKGs. And what they found that there was no significant association between the EKG score and the amount of clot on the CT examination. So patients with a larger clot burden don't necessarily have worse EKG studies. Nowadays, the clinicians will also order a test. Usually it's a D-dimer test, and this is a degradation plot product of fibrin. And there's two methods, so you might want to look at your institution which method they use. The one that's much better is the ELISA method, which was much slower, but definitely more accurate. But now there's rapid ELISA, so you really want your institution to be using the ELISA method for determining D-dimer because it's much more accurate. But there's a faster one called the latex agglutination assay, which is faster but less accurate. And D-dimer has been extensively studied in patients with pulmonary embolism. So since it's a product of fibrin, patients who have clots will have elevated D-dimer. So if you look at all the literature, it's best characterized as having good sensitivity and negative predictive value, but poor specificity. For example, D-dimer levels are abnormal in 95% of patients with a central PE. Okay, so that's good. But it's only abnormal in about 50% of patients with a subsegmental PE. Now, people argue whether those subsegmental PEs are important or not, but I think in a way they are important. Although they're not life-threatening to the patient at the time of diagnosis, they do predict that the patient is at risk for subsequent emboli. So if you look at the negative predictive value in patients with normal D-dimer levels, they have a 95% chance of not having a PE. So that's great. So if you have a patient with chest pain and you get a normal D-dimer, basically you're excluding the possibility of a pulmonary embolism. Now, among patients with a low clinical probability of PE, so let's say you had a patient and you thought maybe they have a PE, but you thought it was probably a low probability and they have a negative D-dimer, then it's 99% chance that they don't have a PE. So that's where it's very useful. So you, you're worried about a PE, you don't think that there's a high chance of it, and you have a normal D-dimer, then you can exclude the possibility. Now, the specificity is a problem. So, for example, D-dimer levels are only normal in 25% of patients without PE. So that's where it's a problem. So often sick patients, hospitalized patients, patients with cancer will have elevated D-dimer levels and don't have a pulmonary embolism. So the specificity is where we have the problem with D-dimer. At your institution, the clinicians may also order an echocardiogram sometimes. And basically, that's to look at the function of the heart, and especially the right heart. So you have right heart dysfunction. That may be 
a sign that the patient has a pulmonary embolism and is going into right heart failure. So it's often used as a first-line test right in the ER to check if there's right heart strain. But of course, even if there is right heart failure, the echocardiogram can't tell you that the pulmonary embolism is the cause. So that would be the problem. The clinicians also should be using something called the WELL score. And when you look at the literature, especially when you look at the PIOPED criteria, and they talk about clinical um, probability of a pulmonary embolism or the clinical suspicion, that isn't just a clinician saying, oh, I think it's a moderate chance or a high chance of a pulmonary embolism. It's a very logical system where they get points and the points are added up and that tells you the probability of a pulmonary embolism. Okay, so it's not just the clinician's guess, it's actually based on literature and data supporting that. So for example, for the well score, if you suspect that the patient has a DVT, then they get three points, right? Because if they have a DVT, then the chance of having a pulmonary embolism goes up. Um, if there's an alternative diagnosis is less likely than a PE, that's worth two points. Tachycardia, 1.5 points. And you could read the list here. So basically, you look at these criteria and you add up the points. Then, in the traditional interpretation, if you have points six or greater, then that would be a high probability based on all the pool data in the literature. Two to six points would be a moderate probability based on the clinical data, and less than two points would be a low probability. Now over the years, things have changed a little bit. So often what they do now is if you have four points or higher, they think, well, the patient could have a PE, and then they do a diagnostic imaging test. So then they might order the CT at that point. Whereas if the patient's scores is less than four, then they think that it's unlikely the patient has a PE, but still a possibility. So then they would order, for instance, a D-dimer. If the D-dimer came back normal, then they could stop there, and they basically effectively ruled out the chance of pulmonary embolism. Now we'll go on to talk about the radiographic studies. Patients often will get a chest x-ray, and chest x-ray abnormalities are common in patients with pulmonary embolism, but they're not helpful diagnostically because they're just as common in patients without pulmonary embolism, patients who have other conditions. So if you look at patients with pulmonary emboli, atelectasis or a pulmonary parenchymal abnormalities are noted in a high number of patients, but it's almost just as high in patients without pulmonary embolism. Pleural effusions were detected in 47% of patients with PE, but 39% of patients without PE. And basically, only 12% of the chest x-rays were read as normal in patients with pulmonary embolism. But still, there's some patients with pulmonary embolism which will have a completely normal chest x-ray. So it's often obtained, not that helpful to make the diagnosis, but maybe helpful to make alternative diagnosis. So if you're suspecting a PE, patient comes in with chest pain or shortness of breath, and you do a chest x-ray and you see fluorid pulmonary edema, then you might have your answer. This is a study where they looked at chest x-rays in 2,322 patients with pulmonary embolism, and cardiomegaly was the most common finding on the chest x-ray. Okay, but it turns out that the presence of cardiomegaly actually didn't correlate with right ventricular problems that they saw at echocardiography. So in the past, when a pulmonary embolism was suspected, the doctors would order VQ scan. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the PIOPED study from 1990. So this was purpose was to determine the accuracy of VQ scans by comparing them at that time to the gold standard, which was pulmonary angiogram. So what they found in PIOPED is patients with a high clinical probability, so that's like the well score, and a high probability based on the VQ scan, they had a 95% likelihood of having a pulmonary embolism. So that's easy. So high clinical prob and high prob based on the VQ scan, you definitely treat for pulmonary embolism, 95% chance that patient has a pulmonary emboli. Similarly, patients with a low clinical probability and a low probability VQ scan only had a 4% chance of having a pulmonary embolism. 
And if you had a normal VQ scan, basically that almost excludes the possibility of a pulmonary embolism. The problem is that the combination of clinical and lung scan probability in most patients was determined to be indeterminate. So in up to 72% of patients, it didn't fall into one of those categories I've described, so you were left with this indeterminate category, and therefore additional testing was needed. So if you look on this chart, see if you have a normal VQ, uh, if you have a normal or near normal VQ scan and a low suspicion, then it's only a 4% chance of PE, but only 14% of the scans fell in that probability. If you have a high high probability VQ scan and a high clinical suspicion, you could see 96% chance of having a pulmonary embolism, but only 13% of the scans fell in that category. The problem is the last line on that chart. So 73% of scans fell into this category, which was indeterminate. Basically, the clinical findings and the VQ scan were either indeterminate or did not match. Also, if you look at the PyoPet study, 6% of the patients only had subsegmental PE. And if you look at VQ scan and subsegmental PE at angiography, it was either high prob, intermediate prob, or low prob. So it was kind of all over the map, but most of them were low prob. This is a study looking at VQ scan versus CT. So 1,400 patients who were believed likely to have a PE were randomized either to undergo CT or VQ. And what's interesting is they had the similar prevalence of PE, 19% on the CT versus 14% on the VQ. And in patients who PE was considered excluded, the CT and the VQ scans had similar incidence of PE occurring in the next three months. So both of them were very low, 0.6 versus 1%. So that data suggests that CT is not inferior to VQ scan. It can be used in a similar way that we use VQ scans in the past. Here's an example of what a VQ scan looks like. You can see there's ventilation in the first row and then perfusion in the second row, ventilation in the third row, and perfusion in the fourth row. So on the ventilation scans, everything looks very homogeneous. On the perfusion scans, you can see little defects, and that's typically what you would see in a positive or high probability VQ scan. So in the old days, if there was an equivocal VQ scan, you would get a catheter angiography. It's way underutilized. Even back then, it was way underutilized. So you can see this study from 1994, 650 patients underwent VQ scan. And after the VQ scan, 525 of the patients, which is 81%, still was unresolved. So they fell into that indeterminate category. But only 14% of them underwent angiography, which was recommended at the time. And you can see what happens is patients, uh, physicians either treat or not treat based solely on the VQ scan or nowadays CT scan. And the clinical information, they're reluctant to uh, then order a CT angiogram because they're worried about it. It actually is very safe. It has a low morbidity and a low mortality, and usually the complications are related to the catheter site or bleeding or sometimes cardiac arrhythmias or respiratory problems. Radiation is a concern, and it varies you know, widely. It really based on how long the procedure takes and how complex it is. Also, catheter angiography has some inter-observer variability, especially for the subsegmental arteries. It's very expensive and it's less available. I mean, you can get a CT basically anywhere, any time of the day or the night. If you want a catheter angiogram, it's a little bit more complicated. The special team has to come in to perform it, and it's definitely more invasive and more time consuming. 
So what would be the advantages of using CT? First, it's direct imaging of the vessels and the clot, right? Widely available, fast, really only takes a matter of seconds. And also, if you don't see a pulmonary embolism, you have the chance to diagnose other causes for symptoms. There's better observer agreement, but um, when you talk about CT, but also it's important to know what your institution is like. It really varies from institution to institution, especially depending on what type of scanners you have and the experience of the radiologist. Also, CT is the advantage. In some cases, you may want to combine CT of the pulmonary arteries with CT of the veins. So you not only are looking at the pulmonary arteries, but you're looking at the veins and the pelvis and the legs to look for the source of the clot. In this chart, you'll see this is the early articles using CT for PE. It actually was single detector CT. Most of them were five millimeter slices. And you can see even back then, we had very high sensitivity and specificity in most of the studies. If you look at more recent studies, so basically ones less than three millimeters, so these were mostly, again, single detector and some multi-detector scanners. Again, very high sensitivity and specificity. In this chart, what, what's the outcome of patients with a negative CT? And so these are all the studies that were published from 97 to 2002. It's almost 2,000 patients. And they had follow-up anywhere from 3 months to 12 months. And you could see the chance. So basically, if you read the study as negative, what's the chance that the patient bounces back and actually did have a PE? It's thought to be 1%. So that's very, very low. We're going to talk a little bit about the PIOPED2, and PIOPED2 was published in 2006 in the New England Journal of Medicine. They started out with 7,284 patients, and basically they had completed data on 824 patients. Uh, and what they were doing, they are looking at CT. Could this be used as a modality, first-line modality for screening patients for pulmonary embolism? So if you look at the clinical probability, there was a low probability in 56% of patients, moderate in 38, and high in 6%. It turns out that 23% of the patients were diagnosed with PE, and then they compared the reference standard with something else. So if the CT was positive, then it also required a high prob BQ or an angiogram or a positive venous Doppler. So when you needed to exclude a PE and the CT was negative, then you either needed a normal VQ, a normal angiogram, or a low prob or very low prob VQ scan with a very low well score. And then they did three and six month interviews to confirm. So they only did the angiogram if the pulmonary embolism was not conclusively diagnosed on the less invasive studies. So if you look at it, they ended up doing the um, angiogram in 225 patients, the VQ scan in 255 patients, and an ultrasound in 50 patients. So what do we see? Actually, the sensitivity of CT was 83%. The specificity was 96%. When you combine it with the clinical information, you can see it goes way up. Sensitivity, 96%. If you have a high or a low clinical probability, that matches with the CT scan. And you can see also that the sensitivity and specificity actually goes up when you're doing CT, if you combine it with CTV, I mean you combine your examination of the pulmonary arteries with examination of the pulmonary veins. So the conclusion of that article was that the CTA combined with the CTV is more sensitive than CTA alone, but they have similar specificity, and that the predictive value of the study really depends on the clinical probability. So if the CT and the clinical probability are concordant, it's very, very accurate study. If they're discordant, then you may need to do another test. So that kind of summarizes the workup of patients with suspected pulmonary embolism. And in part two, we'll discuss the technique for doing CTPA. Thank you.